This is Catalog and Cocktails. Hello, everyone. Welcome. It's Wednesday once again. It's time for Catalog and Cocktails, your honest, no BS, non-salesy conversation about enterprise data management. I am a longtime data nerd and product guy, Tim Gasper, and joined by my co-host, Juan. Hey, Tim. I'm Juan Cicada. I'm the principal scientist data.world. And as always, it's Wednesday, middle of the week, end of the Wednesday, and time to take a break and chat about data and uh, all the fun stuff that we always do. And today, we're going to continue our conversation a little bit like last week, which was about graphs, but it's going to be graphs and more than graphs. And it's going to be about open source. And we have an awesome guest for this topic, which is Denise Gosnell. Denise is the chief data officer of DataStacks. Denise, how are you? I, well, I mean, it's it's Wednesday, and uh, I absolutely love Juan and Tim, what you guys are doing here. So this is quite an, a fabulous end to end of the Wednesday because I'm on the East Coast. So I'm doing great. Awesome. Uh, and Denise and I, uh, we've kind of known each other for a long time. I really, we, we meet at conferences. Well, when we met at conferences, but yeah, when we did, yeah. times a year. Um, Denise is, uh, did her PhD in computer science a lot of work in graphs. She has a book on graphs. Uh, so if there's somebody who knows about graphs, who knows about data, knows about open source, I think Denise is on the top of that list in the world. And I'm just so excited to have you here today and let's go chat about. Yeah, our- thanks. Yeah, and I mean, I, uh, I'm i pretty sure you, you've been incredibly busy too uh, with your recent book out on knowledge graphs. So between the two of us, we've got it covered. <laughs> exactly. So what are we drinking and what are we toasting for today? All right, so uh, this is critical. I'm I'm drinking Lacroix, but it's the best flavor of Lacroix. This is this is apricot Lacroix, which is clearly the top flavor. Um, and I am toasting to um, new approaches and uh, new strategies. One, uh, we were talking about this. This is the one thing I had bookmarked on my calendar after my sabbatical. I just had a nice three month break where I disconnected. I was doing a ton of hiking. We can talk about that if you want, but yeah, just new approaches and new ideas. That's what I'm toasting to today. Awesome. Awesome. Tim, how about you? Um, I am today drinking just a regular old fashioned, but I got a a special uh, set of bitters in it. Uh, These uh, workhorse rye um, uh, salted cacao bitters, Uh, and they're they're pretty tasty. Uh, So it's salted cacao. Uh, and uh, you know what? First of all, I'll cheers to uh, new approaches. That's awesome. Yeah. And I will also cheers to um, actually one of my coworkers uh, is going on a sabbatical uh, starting next week. And that sounds awesome. So I'm going to cheers to sabbaticals. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I think we're going to be toasting for sabbaticals because I would love to take a sabbatical a couple of years, but uh, yeah, I'm going to follow your footsteps, Denise. <laughs> I'm, I'm having, I just made this up. Always look to figure out what's in my refrigerator, my bar, jalapeno, um, passion fruit syrup, cucumber vodka. And I think one of the best sparkling waters now, which is aha cucumber and strawberry. I think this feature apricot LaCroix, Denise. That is, that is number two in my house. And that exact flavor is so oh, you I, have that too? I'm with you. All right. Well, I, Here's to, to sabbaticals and to really interesting uh, uh, sparkling waters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we got our warm-up question today. This is, 
what open source tool best personifies your personality? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I can't answer graph because that's going to be like way too obvious. So um, I'm going to go with um, Apache Airflow. And I'm going with Apache Airflow because it's connecting data sources together for managing your data, uh, you know, your data tasks, et cetera. And I mean, who doesn't love anything more than connected data? I, of course, love connecting data. Um, so yeah, I'm going with Apache Airflow and uh, I freaking love it. How about you, Tim? Um, I is is Jupiter open source? It's a great question. <laughs> I, I know Zeppelin is. So I'm gonna I'm gonna say Jupiter, even if it's maybe not open source potentially. <laughs> I think it is. Uh, maybe it's uh, not Apache. Maybe that's the thing, um, because it's analytical, it's uh, collaborative, uh, and it's not super fancy. Fancy, you know, it's no frills. It's practical, right? So I'm I'm Jupiter. I'm gonna go do. I'm gonna go do to my roots. So Apache Jenna and Jenna is the, the RDF semantic web framework, which also has a graph database. So it's about having the database, right? It could be all about connect data too, but you also have this framework, right? It gives you this way how to go establish how to best manage all your data. So there we go. All about connection. Hey, we, we could get some real work done with, some, you know, we got Jupiter here. We got yeah. a graph database. We got airflow, man, we could do some stuff. All, all right. This is getting way too serious now, guys. No, well, no, no real work. <laughs> All right. So it's time to, to get a little bit more serious, but honest and no BS. So, Denise, honest, no BS. What is this future of open source and data going to look like? Is it yeah, going to be just Apache Jenna and Airflow and Jupyter Notebooks or what? That is. The three, the three of us are ready to take the future. That's all we need. <laughs> um, okay. So what is the future of open source data look like? Um, if I mean, if I if I had to really pick one central theme, I would love for it to be much more transparent. And I'm thinking when I say transparent, I'm seeing transparency from the full data stack, all the way from uh, just being able to understand how you fit into these algorithms when you're a consumer of different data services or people you know are using your data, um, all the way down to having transparency and observability into how they're performing. So. To me, the future of open source data uh, is really going to be at the heart of transparency. Like, for example, um, I'm thinking even transparency all the way into how uh, like recommendation algorithms work for, say, your favorite social media site. Because these algorithms, the way that they are right now, they're really convergent. So as a consumer of these sites, the way that they work, it's, it's kind of pushing people to the same type of content or the same set of con content. So when I say convergent, that's what I mean. And it just would be really nice if it was transparent as to how it was working and it was transparent to how, or to like which sets of content are becoming very popular. And then maybe even transparent to where you could change how content is delivered to you so you can get out of, you know, pur purposely being put into a silo. Um, so when I'm talking about transparency at the end, I'm already thinking at that level and then uh, as all of us being engineers and, and uh, data practitioners, it would be really great if it was a lot easier to see the basic performance metrics of any data API, be it what like scalability or its throughput or uh, just the payloads that are failing when it's trying to go through. I mean, just transparency all around. I think, I think our entire uh, system right now is very opaque into how data is used, and I would just love for it to start to be a little bit more observable. Hmm. So 
So I, I like how you're going with this on transparency goes into so many different aspects, right? So the, the consumer is accessing some data, whatever, through some open source tool, right? It could be. And, and I want to understand how that works. So it's transparency over there all the way down to like the, the actual storage engines and figure out how that works and what, why, how, what's going underneath the hood. So we don't have this level of transparency right now. So is that your point that we're lacking that transparency right now? Uh, that we're lacking it right now, absolutely, to the place you just mentioned, all the way down to the database, but then all the way up to the end consumer understanding how their data is being used, how to remove their data from it, or even being able to see how uh, you know content is, is being put in front of them and maybe creating a, a divisive environment or putting them into a silo that they don't want to be in. Like transparency all the way from the top to the bottom. So not Make just... Sense? observability and transparency or you know transparency in terms of observability but also um also lineage seems to also be something you're talking about yes. maybe technical lineage in one respect but also sort of the business lineage in another absolutely yes and you just hit on another like soapbox topic for me and it's data provenance and not having transparency into the provenance of some data and when we talk about data provenance we're just talking about where it came from where it's going who owns it, how it changed, all of that. So Tim, absolutely. And I think part of this whole transparency we want to get is also on the privacy aspect, right? So we want to yeah. go is how our data is being used. Uh, I mean, in the Providence, where is it coming from? And where is it going to go to? So what, what are right now the open source tools or systems out there that are focusing on this type of observability, on privacy, on transparency? That's a that's a really great question, and the only the only thing I'm thinking of right now is what Charity Majors is doing at Honeycomb, um, what what they're going after for creating observability uh, more into the lower part of the stack with uh, observability into API performance or different backend uh, engineering uh, items. That that's the only one I'm really thinking of at the moment. Um, on the other side of the transparency debate or transparency argument. Um, I think we run into it all the time. It's whenever you go to a website and all of a sudden now, because of GDPR and other compliance issues, there's that pop-up that's like, are you okay with cookies? And we're all like, yeah, 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 we're fine. But if you happen to be the person who's not, Juan, when was the last time you tried to look at a cookies setting, look at your cookie setting on a website and then change it? Yeah, I don't do this. It's... It's incredibly difficult because it, you, it, there's just not an easy way to figure out how cookies are tracking your information, where it's going, and the different ways that you can limit how much they have to track, maybe to even just the minimal. And if you select only minimal cookies, what does that still mean? Like there's not even transparency at that aspect. And I know you asked about tools, um, and I don't really know if I have a ton of answers there because maybe that's the future of what we need to create for our market. Um, but, but yeah, when I think of transparency, I first think of honeycomb and what they're doing in the back end, And then I think of the day-to-day -day consumer problem when we have no idea what these cookies are tracking about ourselves. So is, is this about creating more or like, are there lack of new, we need new, new tools or existing tools need to be able to go add more transparency to them? Or is it both? Because I, I mean, you can boil the, I mean, how much do you want to go boil the ocean <laughs> or not? That's, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah, um, there's, I mean, the answer at the end of the day is going to end up being both. And I see fewer tools 
for the latter problem I described. I see fewer tools that are educating consumers on the transparency of their data usage. Um, at, you know, because as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about Grafana. I mean, that's a really great tool for observability into your backend systems and performance metrics, et cetera. Um, and I'm, there's probably plenty more. I don't know if anyone is uh, on Twitter or on YouTube or LinkedIn because we can see your comments. Um, if, if, if any of you guys are thinking of some, let us know um, and you know put them in because we can see them here. Uh, but I just, I don't know, Tim, Juan, do you guys know of any tools that are solving the problem on the consumer side, making it transparent I mean, to where it is going? There's some open source libraries and things like that that are that are interesting around sort of you know, certain types of scanning and things like that. Like on the, like, for example, I've been looking a lot into sort of PI related sensitive data scanning and things like that. And like, there's some interesting libraries and things out there, but like, there isn't a ton in terms of like big projects. In terms of observability, you got stuff like, uh, like great expectations, for example, which is a little more on the testing side, right? Okay. Um, uh, and then, but like in terms of like data monitoring, data observability, it just seems like in general, like lineage observability. I mean, you, you've got some open source metadata things out there like Adminson and things like that. It just seems like data quality, observability, transparency. It, it has tended not to turn into a lot of open source tooling, really, at least not in a flexible, broad way, right? Like, well, there's like Atlas and, and that sort of project on the Hadoop side, but I don't, yeah. I don't know if that's really, you know, going a lot of places right now, right? And maybe that's why this is the future of data, right? <laughs> like, so if people want to invest on uh, creating some tools that companies and teams are going to pick up and want to use right away, uh, I would I would heavily bet that this area is going to be fast growing in the next five years or so. so. So let me go take this to the to kind of the area of who's going to be the user of these tools. So if they don't exist, they don't these an open source tool around observability, right? Or they don't exist because people haven't realized that we need them or is it because why spend my time on this is already commercial tools out there like at the end of the day who are is gonna who are the consumers of these open source tools because maybe for enterprises who actually have that problem I'm kind of coming starting with that premise they're not going to go use open source for that i'm just going to have a, a a commercial tool vendor around it I mean that's that's a great that's a that's a great question and uh, happy to kind of toss some ideas around. So, go the the first the first place I would look would be um, just the the space of enforcing GDPR. So let's say that uh, you know you as a company, well, if you are supporting customers in the EU, you better be doing this. Um, but you have to have pathways and and ways to enable any user to request all their information and delete it, right? That's GDPR. Uh, I think one of the first ways that we could create more observability around that question would be a tool for uh, your data teams at a company. Uh, it, would, it would be a way to more easily track and have the ability to have that provenance information readily available so that you can answer that question much more quickly. Because if I understand it now, it's mainly customized pipelines that people are making in order to answer those questions. But I mean, Tim, Juan, I don't know if you guys have any other experience there. No, I think that's right. I mean, I think one of the things that I'm excited about, and I'm curious if, if you're thinking the same way, is like, I love that things like DBT are getting a lot more traction in the community. Um, because 
obviously that, you know, at its core is, is an open source project, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as people start to build more open source componentry into their, into their stack, into what they're doing from a data pipeline perspective, I feel like that's going to lend itself more towards this ecosystem expanding. Um, because in the end, like it'll, it'd be nice if all these things could really work well together. Um, and maybe this kind of spawns more in that area. I don't know if that, that sounds right or not. Yeah. I, I, I think that DBT would need, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a deep DBT user. Um, but I think that we would need, um, maybe traceability. Maybe we should, maybe we should go with that word. That needs to be a new word. Data observability of systems is, you know, going to be essentially traceability of data in our, in a little metaphor there. I think that DBT would, would, uh, would be really benefited if it had some type of way to understand just quickly your full lineage of a payload. Um, I don't know if that's something it offers, but when I'm thinking about transparency and visibility into data lineage or data provenance, I'm kind of thinking that there would be a way to understand every component of the, of the system that that piece of data has traced through. And that's essentially at the end of the day, the question you need to answer for, for GDPR. You know, for this customer, I need a quick map everywhere that their data has touched. Yeah, I, I think there's a, a product like Open Lineage, right? I think the, our, our friends from Datakin, I think those are the ones who've been kind of pushing this uh, open source or kind of like, uh, 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 call it a, the kind of a almost yeah. a, a schema to be able to go to find Open Lineage about all your jobs and stuff. But actually... It was interesting that our conversation is heading more into like the interoperability of metadata. Because at the end of the day, the metadata is when it's, it's going to explain us how all this real data is moving around, right? Um, and I think one of the things that we really need is I want to have a way, uh, an open source or open uh, approach to be able to connect all my different tools around. Because at the end of the day, you're not going to have one tool, one silver bullet that's going to go do everything for you. Right, all the way from let's go integrate data. I mean, you, you have all these different things, right? You have, I mean, look at the modern data stack, right? You have, yeah, you have your ETL tools, your T, your DBT, right? You got your reverse ETL now in vendors, and you got your data warehouses, you got your airflows, you got your your a bunch of open source and commercial tools, and there's just like so much stuff that you need to go pick and choose from. And how do I go connect this all this stuff together? You connect the right now is writing custom code or or you have this thing connects only to these three tools and so forth. So I want to have is less an open way to say, look, I'm going to plug in a data quality tool. I'm going to plug in a PII tool tomorrow. I'm probably going to swap it or not or whatever. I yeah. just want to have that that interoperable way of, of bringing in any type of data that deals with sorry, any type of uh, system that deals with metadata. And that open approach is what's going to be able to let me go do that traceability. So I think it's, I don't think it's more about having another software system. I think it's more about having an open approach to kind of describe metadata. That's my position now. Yeah. And I mean, knowledge graphs solve that perfectly, don't they, Juan? <laughs> well, well, yes, I believe so. Well, yes, they do. <laughs> I mean, well, this is why I always argue that your first knowledge graph is how, better be of your metadata. You want to be able to go connect all your metadata together. So I know not just that I know what's out there from my, from what sources I have, but also how things connect and flow together. And then later on, you can go do more stuff with, with the rest of your data. But I think an organization should think about when we think about connected data in reality, 
go kind of understand how your metadata is connected. And actually the people, that's the other thing. It's not just about like the, the, the bits on, in your system. It's actually the people within the organization because at the end of the day, uh, when we, we talk about GDPR, it's because there is a government, there's a, there, there, there's a government who's asking for this. There's a person who's asking for this. It's people. It's a social technical phenomenon. It's not just about technology. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I think, um, so the original question that we were we were chasing, Juan, which I thought was a really good one, which was who are going to be the consumers of this open source tech to create transparency? And, uh, and we kind of dove in into potentially what the world of data engineers and data operators, like the data teams inside these companies, what that could look like. Uh, and I'm, I'm going back to this point because some of the comments coming in here from LinkedIn are starting to highlight what type of transparency people want on the other side. Uh, someone here is talking about uh, who can solve this problem, but I just wanna know who's collected cookies about my browser behavior. Um, absolutely, I think that's a really great uh, comment. I think that's Rodney brought that in. So thank you for that, because that type of solution is absolutely the type of transparency into your data usage that people just wanna know. And one more step after that is I want to easily be able to go to this site and understand how to control and change those preferences. Um, now, that's not exactly a data transparency and an observability problem, but that that is definitely an information architecture issue that is out there right now that is right at the edge of the data community. And, and we have a, I just see it as a LinkedIn user, right? Not another metadata system, but a metadata ecosystem where I can place and replace the tools I want, plug, play, unplug. That, Absolutely. That's, you nailed it. That, that's exactly what I was thinking about. It's not a, not a system, right? It's, it's an ecosystem. I want to be able to have an ability to, that, that connective tissue that I can go plug in and play any type of, of system that's going to be using my data and, and to understand how the data is being used is I need to go connect that metadata. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm liking where we're heading on. Like, I, I, I did not, I was not thinking about transparency kind of being the future of open source and data, but I think it's the, the if it's transparency, it's about let's making, let's make our metadata first-class citizens and make it interoperable and not just go buy and go get all these tools and plug, and plug them together by hand wiring and writing code and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like maybe we've we've got some of our foundation now, right? We've got our databases and our data warehouses. We have some of our data pipelining. We've got our orchestration with things like Airflow and Daxter and things like that, right? And so maybe as you're kind of noting, Denise, the next frontier here is really more the meta layer, right? It's the observability, mm -hmm. the transparency, the lineage, it's understanding. And, and the more that enterprises and companies can understand their own data, perhaps the better that they'll actually be able to help consumers be able to understand what the hell yeah. that they're, you know, is being tracked about them and things like that. Cause if a company can't answer the question themselves, you know, how can they be, how are they going to then actually, you know, serve the consumer in the situation? Uh, yeah, absolutely, Tim. And to the, the person, I can't see who it is on this one, but there was someone who commented and said, are there enough people scared enough by this today? And Tim, to your point, uh, I think that there is a growing motivation to make this more tractable for inside businesses and eventually to consumers. And I think we're getting more pull today from the consumer side. And that's where you're starting to see the explainable AI movement uh, really come into play with people wanting to understand what is this algorithm doing for me and how, how do I really fit in? And that, that ties back to uh, 
when we were first talking about this and I was, I was doing a really poor job of just describing how these uh, recommendation algorithms, they, they converge content or they converge your experience to sets of content instead of continually refreshing it to a more diverse maybe collection of the full sampling. And we feel that anytime we're on the internet today when it feels like it's incredibly um, tense to have a conversation because it's painted a picture that there's side A versus side B. And that just happens to be a byproduct of algorithms that are maybe optimized to put people um, for optimized for click through rates and optimized for time on page. It creates, it creates this silo and division that actually might not exist in the real world. Uh, and but that's a part of our digital experience now. Um, so yeah, yeah. Tim, I, I just thought that your that your commentary on that really fit in with where explainable AI is being pulled from us, the data practitioners and tool builders from the consumers. Yeah. Is there any open source explainable AI system, whatever that would even mean? I'm curious. I, I think that's that's going to be Tim, Denise, and Juan Co. Twenty twenty six. <laughs> yeah is is there a really good explainable ai period right now <laughs> is any ai explainable anywhere can we just just give us one example of explainable well, AI? Think, well sim symbolic ai like rule-based ai is definitely going to be explainable right but now we have all these black boxes and stuff i think that's yeah i think that's something that i think that's another thing that we need to kind of um just as practitioners, as a community, is like, okay, we get all this AI stuff and we're using it on my data, right? So, okay, I understand how the data flowed, but then suddenly the data flowed into this box and something came out of that. So I understood that it came to this box and came out. What happened in that box? We literally had this beautiful flow of how things are going and then suddenly it just disappeared and then something came out. We don't know what happened. So I think if we're, th if we're thinking about this transparency, AI is taking this big part of it. We're going to just, oh, dot, 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 magic happens and then uh, continue. And what, are we just going to buy that? Is that okay? I, I think I think we, the consumers are really needing to have to go push on this and saying, I want to know more about this. Tell me more. I do. I do think that they need to push on it. And that's, I want to, yes, like all the claps to what you just said. Um, and I think that the first area that we hit oh so often and have that muscle memory of just saying, oh, I accept, I accept. The first way we run into this every day is with cookies. Tell me what you're doing with my data, with collecting of these cookies. And, and just give me an answer for that because it's an experience that is in my face every day and you should have a solution for. Um, let's just start the conversation there because I think that's one of the first mass endpoints that we could get some pull going in the community for uh, making things a little bit more explainable. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a, an interesting topic. I think uh, at some point we should set up a follow-up where all we do is just talk about AI, explainable AI, because there's so much interesting stuff to unpack there. Absolutely. Um, you know, just to take us in a, in a slightly different direction, um, you know, as we think about all these different open source tools and this this ecosystem, you know, uh, there's a lot out there. There's so much to really absorb as a developer that wants to either contribute to these things or wants to use, you know, use these different things. Um, as, as you're thinking about this community and all the th these things that are out there, and even from your own experiences working with these tools, you know, how do you start? Like, where, where, how do you learn? Where do you learn? Well, um, how to start 
is uh, a very simple answer from my perspective, and it's to start with some empathy. To start with empathy for the developers, for any person around this massive loop of data. Uh, and it's important to start with empathy because we're all showing up with really hard problems to solve and other things going on. And that's just going to create more productive conversations uh, for solving these problems. So that's where I would start, Tim. Um, and uh, so what, what was the second part of your question? And then, you know, how do you how do you learn? How do you you know, how do you really uh, build your skills and, and your focus in this area? Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is coming from bias perspective because it's one of the ways I like to learn. Uh, if you want to get involved in any area here, pick a data problem to solve and really diving in end to end to solve that problem is going to be one of the best ways to get experience and to understand very deeply how certain tools are useful in solving problems uh, or not in solving certain problems. And so when you when you pick up a certain business initiative and you go to solve it end to end, you really, really become deeply familiar with all these topics we're talking about when it comes to data provenance and tracking your data through the system. Uh, and what Juan was mentioning for having a really solid solution for tracking metadata. So the first place to start is to solve a real problem. And my second piece of advice on top of that is to pick a problem to solve or to align yourself with a problem to solve that has business value. Too many times I've seen really brilliant, just super kick-ass cool solutions to data problems by some of the most unique data scientists never see the light of day. And it was primarily because they weren't going after a problem that was relevant today or in the near future. And so all of their work kind of just got shelved and no one likes that feeling, kind of going back to the idea of empathy. Uh, so, so Tim, those are, those are my two pieces of advice. Um, if you want to get started, First, pick a problem, solve it end-to-end -end with a team so you are deeply familiar with what that's like. And two, make sure that problem that you're working on is aligned to an area of business that uh, is really going to be furthering uh, whichever business initiative that you're working on. So you're, you're saying don't just pick a random tool because you heard a lot about it and it sounds really exciting and, and you want to build a playground of all these cool things and how they can connect together. And You're, you're saying we shouldn't do that? I mean, to start, if like this is day zero and day one, maybe not. <laughs> oh, I love that. I mean, one of the recurring themes here is start with use cases. So this is absolutely confirmation of that. No, and, and and this is I think this is great advice because if you're if so many people get frustrated because I'm doing all this stuff and it's cool, but it doesn't make an impact. And if that's I mean, if that's your frustration right there, then Hey, let's. You got to be honest about it. Is that you have to go understand where is that business? What is the business problem? Understand how the business needs it, and that's your impact. Your impact is going to be towards the business. Otherwise, you're just going to be like, okay, here's this cool researchy product. Here's the next thing, squirrel. Here's the next thing, squirrel. And then you're just going off and doing squirrel, squirrel, squirrel. And like, okay, you learn a bunch of things, but uh, what's the impact you're going to do? Maybe, maybe you learn, and that's fine. But then. People want to, I mean, at the end of the day, you want to go do something and say, hey, I helped other people. I mean, uh, let, let it be, I'm helping the company make more money or I'm working on a nonprofit uh, approach and doing something else. So I think we really need to go tie it to the end. What is the final need? I think this is really important because we forget about it. And we just focus again on this is cool tech. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, imagine 
that feeling of the first time you had code that was getting run in production. It's it's like the coolest thing ever. It's like, oh, I did that. And and when you and you start from there and you help empower the next generation of engineers and brilliant minds to be contributing to problems where you can lead them to that moment, it's it's gonna make so many other aspects of this conversation a lot easier. I remember when I I'll be very honest, I have not contributed to open source. Yeah, I'll be honest about that. Shame um, on you. I, but I, but I have, I don't know, I started contributing to code is to like my own code bases, stuff that, that, that <laughs> do a company, right? I'm almost focusing on, well, I'm building a company in the code. And for me, it's like, oh yeah, my code's in production, but then I'm not going to go sleep because I hopefully that code is working because people actually go use it. And I don't want people to be calling tomorrow at seven o'clock in the morning. At, Why did something break? So it's a, it's, it's a fascinating, but at the same time, uh, it doesn't let me sleep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the beautiful pitch for more observable data systems, by the way. Oh, I love this. So great. So we got to focus more on transparent observability so we can actually sleep comfortably at night. Absolutely. <laughs> no one wants to be on pager duty. <laughs> yeah, this reminds me of one of our episodes uh, with uh, Chris Berg uh, about data ops. We were talking yeah. like, why do data ops so I can actually have a weekend and not worry about work? Right, like that type yeah. of stuff. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, whoever ends up on that rotation to have to monitor systems, you know, just again, apply a lot of empathy because no one really wants to be dedicating their midnight to 6 a.m. hours to that kind of work. So. I love this, empathy, empathy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yep. So let, let's go kind of change a little bit of topics here because one of the things that we're both passionate about is graphs. Um, absolutely. We've got to talk about graphs for one thing. And one thing I had noted here is what are we 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 both love graphs and everything, but there's this other thing that we hear a lot is GraphQL. Yeah. And I, so well, one of the annoying things that I one something that really annoys me is this thing called GraphQL that has nothing to do about graphs. Yeah. And 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 so where where are we seeing kind of GraphQL now within the whole kind of open source and data community? Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna start with what is the difference because um, we've got please, some, please. yeah we've got some folks listening and we're saying graph and now we're just adding a QL on the end and it's different, um, right? So I think all up until now when you've heard Juan and I talking about graphs, we have been talking about a specific way to look at data, a specific data structure, and it's all about the relationships in the data, just like it's all about relationships between people. That's a graph. Uh, when we're talking about GraphQL, we are talking about a way that you that developers can query databases from their apps. Two totally different ideas. We've got a way data is structured with relationships. That's graphs. GraphQL is a way to query data from an app. Um, so that's just a kind of level set. I want to start there. Juan, Which could be in a graph or is probably in whatever other type of storage. Again, yeah. GraphQL works with all types of storage uh, layers on the bottom. So it could, it could be a graph, but not always. Actually, most often not. <laughs> not a graph, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the thing. So is, is so where are we going with graph? Where is the open source because community going off with GraphQL? Because you see it all over the place. Is this, is, is, is this taking over the world or not? Is it just passing through or? I think it's a safe bet that it is absolutely going to take over the world. Um, it's... It's, I mean, for the lack of a better analogy, it's going to be the sequel of the next gen of how you work with 
uh, work with apps and work with data in your apps. Absolutely. That's if that hasn't great. been said before, we should TM that because I think that's a really good way to explain it. It's the next sequel of working with data. <laughs> so that's, that's a that's, big deal. That's yeah. a big statement. Yeah, um, it, I, I would think so. And where it's going in the open source world is uh, one of my most uh, favorite way favorite inventions, or I don't know what the right word is, uh, but GraphQL recently came out with data federation, which I'm pretty stoked about. Uh, because now it's starting to bleed into doing neighborhoody graph things with your data. Um, so now GraphQL is starting to try and get really close to graph structured data functionality. Uh, but uh, where GraphQL is going with federation is something I'm pretty excited about. Uh, and what, what you're able to do with federation is you can write your GraphQL statement. So you're an app developer, you're using GraphQL to query your databases. And with federation, you can query your customers and then your products in separate databases. One could be, you know, a SQL database. One could be a document DB. Um, as long as your resolvers are working, you can just do all of this. Uh, so you can query different databases and then federate that information back together uh, because it was related in some way, like a customer made a purchase of this product. Uh, so it's very interesting to see how GraphQL and data federation specifically is pushing the bounds of what the GraphQL query language can do up to graphy shaped problems. So I'm, uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing that continue to evolve. Have you have you worked with Data Federation yet, Juan or Tim? Yeah, we we, we do. We don't want to get uh, salesy in here, but- uh, yeah, yeah, in the context no, of our, our platform, but not in the context of GraphQL, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I, I, I think for, so, Again, I love how we're just going off on different topics, and this is cool. I think for the uh, the federation for me comes in combination with like the also data virtualization, right? So you want to kind of keep your data where it is. That's why you want to go virtualize and federate. You want to go combine queries about this. They come from different sources. The I see like the use cases around this are more kind of from the development perspective, right? and those because. You, you have physics, you got to move data across the wire, right? And, and, it's, and for some use cases, it's going to be fine. Uh, for privacy reasons, maybe I need to keep the data as it is. And, and yes, you got to wait extra seconds and that's fine. That's the price you go pay for privacy. And maybe for development, that's great because I can quickly see how I'm going to go integrate data. But hey, I, I won't be able to keep my SLAs. I'm going to have to, after I figure it out, I'm going to go materialize it. But I, I think that's how I'm going to see federation and virtualization is more for like quick and dirty things uh, for development. And then depending on some of the use cases, you can move that to production. But it's probably just more for like development, see how it's going on. That, that, that's my perspective. What do, what do you think? I mean, I absolutely, I mean, yes. I mean, that's where federation is right now today is kind of in more development. Let's see how to use it. Um, uh, so I, yeah, I Juan, there's not very really much. What are the open about. source? Let's go connecting back to open source. What are the open source federation tools uh, systems? Yeah. Um, so I don't want to get salesy either. The only open source federation tool I know is one that I contribute to through uh, through my work here at DataStack. So, and that would be Stargate. Um, but but uh, I would love to know more if, if other folks out there know of other data federation open source tools. I know Apollo is working on some, of course. And just to answer a question that some that just came in on LinkedIn, uh, it says, wait, GraphQL isn't just another graph query language. And that is correct. GraphQL is not another graph database query language yet. Mm -hmm. um, just on that topic of virtualization and federation really quick, 
is um would you all consider things like presto and um what else is out there drill and th those types of things are those federation i i think they're definitely query engines i guess it's all kind of a blur now it's all kind of because <laughs> right? you have federation you have use, right? distributed queries right because it's impresto distributed sql query engine mm -hmm. how do we all see this what what does it mean to be a distributed sql query engine can we what is, what is that it means that you're federating queries <laughs> <laughs> Virtualization and federation. Ah, maybe it's all the same stuff, just different word choices. <laughs> not, okay, it sounds like this is the next topic of emerging cool tools where we would like some more clarity. So <laughs> we, we should put a bookmark on this one. I, yeah. <laughs> but um, so so give it a little bit of license here on the salesy part, but because you're open source, I'd love to hear more about Stargate because I'm not familiar that much with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, Stargate, uh, just think of it as like an API platform, uh, an open source API platform that gives you the ability to work with your data, whatever endpoint way that you would like, uh, REST, GraphQL, gRPC, you name it. Uh, it's an open source uh, API platform that gives you any style of endpoint that you want. And the and so it uses GraphQL too? Does, yeah. Yep. And uh, I mean, right now, being that this is something that is coming out of Datastax, the main supporting backend is Cassandra. No surprise. Another open source database coming from Datastax as well. But um, it's just, I don't know, it's its really changed the way that uh, developers are, you know, accessing their data that needs to be incredibly highly avail available at the Cassandra level. And it's its really interesting to see how people are wanting to, uh, you know, use data in Cassandra in a different way. Like the idea of just putting a GraphQL endpoint on top of Cassandra tables was kind of like, huh, let's see what people do with that. Uh, but it's been it's been pretty interesting. And you can, you know, federate data there too. But we, we're getting way too sales even for my liking. So let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. <laughs> bring it back. <laughs> well, so I have a question now on, on GraphQL, right? So okay. maybe take it back a little bit here. You know, I, so I've noticed that a lot of companies are starting to add GraphQL endpoints to things. Like, for example, I know that like Monte Carlo data has like a GraphQL endpoint and sort of the observability side. Tableau has a GraphQL endpoint. You know, these things are kind of more on the sort of the API side in terms of like accessing the data and being able to do it in a way that like reflects and respects the relationships more and things like that. So that's interesting, right? Um, you know, and, and I'm curious, Denise, if you have a perspective on this or if, if Juan, you end up having more of the perspective on this is like, so you've got GraphQL and you've got like graph databases and graph query engines and things like that. Like, are these things converged? verging in the future? Are they kind of just parallel things to each other? They just both happen, happen to have the word graph in their name? I, I've got tons of opinions. Juan, don't I, 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 no, well, um, my what's going through my head right now is that given the whole popularity of GraphQL and what Denise is just telling us that they're kind of going and doing more graphy things, I'm actually hoping that the that people are going to get interested more in graph databases because of what GraphQL is trying to go do. But this is literally going through my head right now in the last 10 minutes because I didn't even know that GraphQL was doing more of these graphy things. So Denise, throw it back to you. you yeah, I am. Um, I'm really excited about where GraphQL is going and I'm closely following it and trying to contribute where I can. Um, right. So Tim, to your question, yes, they are converging. Um, the first place they're converging right now is obviously by the shared name. Facebook's original reason for um, inventing GraphQL was to do 
what the graph nerds like Juan and I call uh, neighborhood queries, uh, which is basically like for me or something I care about, tell me everything that's immediately connected to me. So all of my first relationships, my immediate friends. And the GraphQL query language, it does solve those problems where it's going to be able to hit one table and then query one layer out. Uh, so that's where GraphQL has, has kind of started. So with the name graph and the ability to do the one neighborhood out types of queries, that's in the intersection between graph databases, graph query languages, and GraphQL today. Um, when they brought in federation, it was giving you the ability to do that same behavior of for this really cool thing, tell me everything connected to it, but look outside my database. And that's where federation comes into, uh, into play. Now, um, you know, maybe Juan and I and some other, you know, graph folks can put our heads together because I would love to see this simple language, this, this, the way that you use the language, I would love to see it extend into actual graph style queries like paths and hierarchies. But the way that the language is specified now, it's not possible to do that. And when you start to look at how that would work technically, things get really hairy, really fast. But we cannot deny that developers are pulling us in the direction of query languages that are easier to use, easier to understand, and just work within their existing app stacks. So Tim, I hope that answers your question. Um, I could go on for way too long about GraphQL. <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm no, I think that I, I think that was actually very helpful because you know, obviously you've got like Sparkle and you've got like the the GQL workstream and things like that that are happening on this side, and then you've got GraphQL, and it just seems like I mean things will go the way they go, right? I mean that's how this sort of space works, right? As things get mature and as more people use them, they expand, you know. But it, it just seems like. You know, GraphQL queries could be running on a graph backend, and and you know, if you want, you know, Sparkle to be running and it to be connected to something that an API is doing. I mean, like it just seems like in general, like you know, I just love that graph-related stuff is continuing to get more and more adoption. You know, regardless of how it's doing. So I mean, that's yeah, awesome. Absolutely. And Tim or Juan, did you guys watch the Olympics and notice Salesforce's new commercial? I did not. No. Yeah, so all over NBC during the Olympics was this Salesforce commercial, or maybe it's my version of the Olympics because they're giving me targeted ads because I'm in tech. <laughs> I don't know, but because you're clicking on all the steps on all the cookies, right, or something like that. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, but to what Salesforce is doing, I'm really excited about this uh, this new product that they started advertising during the Olympics. I'm a big sports nerd, so that's where that's where this part is coming into my life, but. Uh, Salesforce has this new thing called Customer 360 for your sales opportunity. And then they bring in all the connected information about it, like who works at that company, et cetera, all into one tool. And I mean, plug out to Salesforce, I guess, because I was like, yes, that is the very beginning of a graph problem to be able to bring in information and connect all the important entities together. Um, and major hats off if they are using GraphQL Data Federation to do it. So let us know. <laughs> Oh. So one of the things you just mentioned is that GraphQL, I think, is uh, developers kind of enjoy because it's kind of easy, has a, has a good developer experience. Um, is it what do you, what's your position about the developer experience of graph query languages then? Ooh, ooh. <laughs> I hope that's said enough. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, let's just say the fact that I had to write a 400 page book to explain how to use graph query languages to solve graph problems is like 300 pages too long. 
Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's just quantitative there. Um, Look, I mean, my heart is always going to go out to connected data. I don't know what it is about me as a person. I can't change it. I love it. And I also am probably one of like the two individuals on the planet who likes Gremlin, the graph query language. Um, (laughs) I'm okay being in that bucket too. Um, But it's, I had to go through the incredibly steep learning curve to figure out how to um, use Gremlin. And I am beyond honored that I got to pour my heart and brains onto 400 pages to try and teach other people. I just don't think that that, that that's a lot. Like that's a lot of information to try and pick up a new tool that is very, very needed if you're going to have more explainable models in the future. Namely graph databases are um, absolutely a part of the explainable AI movement because it helps it make much more transparent sense as to why things are, are the way they are in a model. Um, but, but back to your question about graph query languages, they're just, they're really hard and we haven't converged on a good solution yet. And as someone squarely in the gremlin camp, I'm more than happy to admit that um, I will love gremlin forever, but it's, I just don't think it's the answer for wide adoption of graph database query languages. I don't know, Juan, what do you think? You're, you're, well, I mean, so I, I'll be honest. I think gremlin is such a complicated language. I come from the RDF graph camp yeah. and I will also acknowledge that Sparkle is is very verbose and annoying with all those URIs and all those things. There's a, they're they're there for a reason. I, I mean, honestly, hats off to 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 the Neo4j folks and 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 Cypher because they really designed the the syntax of a language to 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 be that the, the ASCII art stuff and I think that's yeah. this makes it cute and kind of easier to understand and and I think yeah, hats off to them for that, and and I know that they're they're the ones who are kind of influencing a lot of this new GQL standard, and I'm and I'm exactly. glad it's 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 more the cipher, and it's not going to be Gremlin or or Sparkle or any of that stuff. I mean, Sparkle's the standard itself, but uh, but yeah, I, I think yeah. I, I think, I think a, there's a lot of um, we need to go do more research or work about developer empathy. It's yeah. like, hey, we we're gonna we're we're why are we creating this thing? How do we how do we make whose life better? And I think if, if you look at it, like GraphQL was made in a way because somebody had a very specific uh, use case. In, yep. in this case, it was super specific. I want to know everything around this one thing here. So how about we create a language or infrastructure, whatever, to go do accomplish that problem? Then people are going to complain. Oh, but you can't do this and this. And this is like, yeah, we can't because that's not the problem we're solving. Oh, yeah. but you're not thinking about the problems. Already. Like, that's fine. I'm just thinking about the pothole that's in front of me and not like all the stuff that's in the sky. And, 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 and maybe later on they're going to run into issues. But at the end, I think at some point we start figuring out how to go converge. So... Um, I, yeah, I think hats off also to the GraphQL because people are really, I see that adoption and it's solving problems and people being more productive around that. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I love that you brought up, um, Cypher because one anecdote is that the first time I realized I wrote something close to a Cypher statement is when I was trying to describe the relationships in my data in Slack to somebody else. And I was writing out the ASCII art of how things were related and I was like, oh, wait, that pretty much is a cipher query. So hats <laughs> off, of course, if your design is, uh, since their design is uh, very intuitive to people yeah. who think in graphs. Well, you were thinking it very quickly translated into almost what the query would have been. Yeah. Um, so I, we've we've passed the 10-minute warning mark here. Okay. And so I think actually what might make sense is for us to switch into the lightning round. Dun, dun, dun. Oh. Where All we right. Ask some quick yes or no questions uh, and walk you through. So um, Juan, you want to start us off? 
I mean, yeah, but the, this guy, the question I already have is not a good one because I already know what the answer is. So, I'm, I'm, <laughs> um, but maybe everyone else might not know, so we could still do it. All right. Well, will GraphQL take over the world of query languages? Yes. <laughs> that was the obvious answer, right? <laughs> For those of you that are just tuning in, check out the recording about thirty minutes earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, I'll do the next question here. Um, so we ended up not talking to a bunch about personas uh, today, but um, uh, are data engineers the new data scientist? Yes. Uh -huh. ah, I want to change my answer, but I'm going to go with yes. <laughs> no, no, I like it. I, I, I like this. I like this. I like this. I like first it. instinct, right. but then a second guess. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Next question. On my first instinct, the context of my first instinct was like in-demand job, right? I feel like five years ago, data scientists were super in demand, and now that demand is shifting to data engineering. They do two different things, though. Mm -hmm. All right, next question. Metadata-related tooling is going to be the fastest-growing segment in open source in the next five years. Very specific. No. no. Wait, after all the thing talk that we've had about transparency, you're saying no. I am saying no because I don't think that it's going to start with metadata. Mm. How's it going to start? How's the transparency part going to start then? Uh, I think that the transparency is going to start with systems to begin with. It's going to start with information movement through systems. Do you define that as metadata? Yes, I would. Well, then, then yes. <laughs> We're well, gonna, we, need, we need a definition on what is meant by metadata. Oh, my God. Data about data, right? <laughs> semantics are important here. <laughs> That's interesting. Right. I mean, that, that brings up an interesting conversation point. Um, all right. Um, last question here. Uh, will open source data tool adoption grow faster than proprietary data tool adoption in the next five years? Ooh. Um, I would love for it to, but I'm going to say no because of security and compliance reasons. Hmm. Wow. That was interesting answer. The entire I like opening pitch was just debated at the very end in the lightning round. We're <laughs> 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 not debated. It was negated at the end in the lightning round. All right. Well, uh, one final comment here I see from Rodney, which I know Rodney just shout out to Rodney, who's always been a, a, a live listener here. So great to see you here. Well, quote unquote, see you. Uh, if Cypher could only do federated queries, and I completely agree with that. So if any Neo4j folks are listening, which they Hopefully are because last week we actually had Emil on the yep. on the podcast. Yeah, you guys, Neo4j folks, go get federated queries. Everybody's doing this stuff. Sparkle supports it. Look, GraphQL is not doing it. You guys better do it too. Come on, come on. You guys are lacking. So should we send him a text message? Is this on your roadmap? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to text Emil right now, saying, "Hey, <laughs> all right, well, Tim, take us away with takeaways, Tim." Absolutely. So, I mean, this is such a great conversation. Um, and I've got so many good notes here. You know, I think one of my biggest takeaways was around when we were talking about um, developers and how they can leverage open source better and, and how they can learn and, and how they should put it to use. Uh, you talked about focusing on a real problem and really focusing on use cases as the center point about where where you're applying this technology, which tools you're grabbing for. I mean, it's so much it's so common sense, but yet so often we see in the industry people not approaching it that way. 
Um, and, and it's the wrong way if you want to learn and if you want to be impactful and if you want that feeling of having impact. Um, so I love that. And, and I love this idea of developer empathy as being the center of the learning, of the adoption, of sort of the participation in the open source community, how tools can help. Uh, I think that's a great term and it deserves to be on, on a T-shirt and everybody should be wearing that. Hey, so my, my takeaway, my main takeaway is transparency. So how we all start this conversation, the honest no BS is of what's next with open source and data is let's go be transparent about it. Uh, and transparency across the entire spectrum, right? How you're consuming the data and where does that come from to the way, like how is the data going through systems and ups and downs and downtimes and all that stuff. Uh, understand what, how your recommendation algorithms work, right? That black box needs to be able to understand what that is. Um, and to go in, uh, in kind of an aha moment I'm having right now is to be able to enable that transparency, it's metadata, but it's really this entire ecosystem of metadata. And, and one of the one of the comments on the chat was not another metadata system, but a metadata ecosystem where I can mm -hmm. place and replace the tools I want, plug, play, and unplug. And I think that that for me is like the main nugget out of this conversation. I think that's where we need to go head towards. Denise, I'm going to throw it back to you. Two final questions. What's your advice about data, about life, whatever? And second, who should we invite next? Yeah. Um, so my advice about life is take a sabbatical. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well, in, in all honesty, the take a sabbatical comment is coming uh, from the theme that Tim was just recapping with developer empathy. Uh, if you want to be able to have empathy for other people, first start with understanding what empathy looks like for yourself. I think a lot of people forget to uh, to make sure that they are capable of of monitoring their own ups and downs sometimes. And uh, if it's gonna be really hard to be empathetic for others when they're going through the myriad of open source software tools that are out there and how to use them uh, when you don't fully understand what that looks like. Uh, so that that's my advice. And who I would invite, um, Holden. I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure that I send a tweet out to him. Uh, we got to get Holden on here. Awesome, Denise. This was a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing this with so many people. This is great. Yeah, this is this is quite entertaining. Thank you guys so much for having me yeah. and uh, and letting me come over with just my sparkling water beverage. <laughs> and I got mine over here. Absolutely. Beverage is welcome. And next <laughs> week is uh, Kirk Bourne. Uh, I think. Oh, I love Kirk. Kirk is just an amazing guy to just go listen to, and uh, we're gonna be. We're gonna, we're gonna try to demystify and debunk some buzzwords in the data space, right? Oh, absolutely. Put metadata on that list because apparently. <laughs> there we go. We got. Yeah. That's yeah. One, right? <laughs> we got. We got. Yeah, definitely. We got like uh, I think industry 4.0 is one we want to go talk about. We got a couple over there. It's gonna be a fun conversation. Awesome. Awesome. Happy Wednesday. Thanks, Denise. Happy Wednesday. Thanks, y'all. Cheers. Cheers. This is catalog and cocktails.